morning. Boy, people over here are paying attention. They're waving. And... It's uh, 9.30, so we will try to get started on time and, Lord willing, get done on time. Another beautiful day. was at the elevator this week uh, where I worked for 47 years and happened to be there when the first semi-load of soybeans came in from this year's harvest. So we're in that season, that harvest season. Yeah. So we're going to get started with our uh, lesson today in Romans. And uh, we're going to we're going to make every effort to get through Romans chapters 6 and 7, as they are, a fair amount of it is actually review and some expansion of uh, what we've already had in the previous chapters. So let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for your goodness to us and for your love, and we thank you, Lord, for uh, the ability you give us to study your word. Father, we have the Spirit of God to guide us and direct us. We just pray that he would today. And uh, Father, we know that your word uh, should be precious to us. It should be something we cherish as Christians and desire to uh, dig into and get to know the truths of what you have for us in Scripture. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that you offered us salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ. And, Lord, that he fulfilled everything that we see in the Old Testament. And, Lord, that he gave us a status of righteousness as we stand before you that we don't deserve. We ask now you bless this time, bless your word, uh, give utterance, give uh, mental recall. And, Father, that we would uh, enjoy our time together in your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, chapters 6 and 7. And um, I was thinking this week, as we go through chapters 5 through 8, what we're actually covering there is uh, the dealing with assurance that we have in salvation. Uh, it's, uh, you know, as we look at the gospel, we say the gospel entails everything that we have here and see here in the New Testament concerning our relationship with uh, Jesus Christ, and uh, he is the gospel, he is all the things that we saw that uh, uh, in uh, earlier chapters that he was addressed as, and uh, what a blessing that is, and that should help us to understand um, what God presents here, and it should challenge us in our own hearts and lives as we see uh, the issues that we face in chapters 5 through 8 in the assurance. And um, one thing that um, uh, this week I read, I was reading an article, and it reminded me of Seth Grodsky, because uh, this, this individual, uh, and Seth Grodsky is in uh, Panta Vidra, Spain, as a missionary up in the northwest corner of Spain. And um, uh, along that, in that area there, and Seth has walked part of that, and he sent us pictures, if you see his uh, emails, he'll send pictures of the uh, Camino de Santiago, that trail, 
that uh, many people walk to get to a, a cathedral up in, uh, I believe it's Galatia, Spain. And uh, it's kind of uh, the, the whole works issue that we see, especially around the time of, uh, of Easter. But this, this gentleman was walking that trail. He was a man that his history was uh, uh, adopted. Uh, he was at odds with his parents. He no longer talked to them. You know, he, he didn't have anything to do with his mother, who uh, actually passed away. Uh, she had been sending letters to him, and he never responded. And he was suffering the guilt, and he was a very vile and uh, uh, very, uh, uh, in, in language and stuff, was, was very rude and crude. And he was a radio announcer in Canada. So anyway, he saw this as an opportunity for him to take a 60-day hike. I guess uh, you can start up in France if you want to, and take the long trail, the, the, the river trail is 500 miles. And so he took a, like a thousand mile trail or something. And um, he was going to spend 60 days and his goal was he was not going to speak a word for 60 days because he realized his mouth was a source of a lot of vile, crude, rude conversation. So that was going to be his punishment, if you will. And along the way, as he's getting towards the end of this trail, there's a place where there's a metal cross that is up on a wooden post. And this metal cross, of course, uh, is uh, indicative of uh, uh, the Catholicism. And uh, this, this, this marked a place where people would carry a rock to and drop a rock there, indicative of the fact that they're unloading this weight and bondage that they were under at the cross. And he brought this rock from home, I guess, as I understood it, and he carried it this whole way, and he took it out of his backpack, and he unloaded his bondage, and he unloaded the, 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 the if you will, the sin that he'd been carrying in his life, and he found there a, a satisfaction and a contentment one problem, when he got home, it didn't work. It didn't work. And I thought that was so indicative of what we're studying in Romans, that that bondage of sin, and we're going to see today the freedom from bondage of sin and the freedom uh, from the bondage of the law. And those are going to be the two things that Paul uh, discusses today after chapter 5, where he showed us the hope that we have in the glory of God and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, who is the glory of God. And that hope we saw in the first 11 verses, 12 blessings that we have, they're accredited to us, not that we earned, not that we deserve, but they're accredited to us in, the, in, the, in our salvation. And we saw in the second part of that, the issue of uh, the first and second Adam, the second Adam being the gift, and we saw repeatedly, as, as Paul talked about that, when it came to the issue of grace, we saw more, more abundantly. There's more grace, and there's more grace, and how God's grace is a huge umbrella that, that is fashioned over all of our life and everything that we've done outside of Jesus Christ once we come to Jesus Christ. And uh, he ended that, and we'll read that in verses uh, 
20 and 21 of chapter 5, now that the law came in to increase the trespass, in other words, our knowledge of sin increased with the law. That's what the law is for. It's that schoolmaster, that tutor. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's where we ended chapter 5, and that's where we'll start chapter 6. So I want to keep that in mind, that the fact that grace abounded all the more. And, he, and many times, we went through that last week, he, he, he repeats that fact that grace is abounded. So we have an ultimate hope in Jesus Christ. Uh, until that is realized, how do we live in view of that hope? And that's, that's part of what he's giving us here now, as we understand We are free from sin. How do we live? We are free from the bondage of the law. How do we live? What what are things that are exhibited in our life? And we're going to see again today that whole whole, uh, 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 synergism of faith that we have in Jesus Christ and obedience. You can't escape them. If, If you're in Christ, you're going to exhibit obedience. If you find that you can't exhibit obedience and that you're back and we're going to see Paul's, I believe, his own testimony in, in chapter 7 of his own life as an as a unsaved Jew, as a Pharisee. Um, if, if that isn't evident, then we have to take a look and see, are we really in the faith? Is it, are we a part of that uh, household of God, if you will? So let's, uh, let's jump into chapter 6 here. And my, my voice is, is really dry this morning. So I apologize, I'll probably do, be doing that. In chapter 6, and we're not going to read everything, and we're going to kind of do the abbreviated form of these and somewhat, and still, still uh, we want to deal with uh, the scripture here. But we see a picture here of the salvation experience and how it's, how it's uh, visually played out, visually laid out, if you will, in the matter of baptism. He starts out here uh, with a picture of baptism, and it's not an allegory that he's giving here. I believe this is the actual fact of water baptism, and we'll get into that and see that as as we go. But in verse 1 he says, um, what should we say then? Now, the grace is abounding for us. What should we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And I remember years ago, I had a, a couple of cousins that they actually stayed with us, and uh, they worked for me at Diamond Concrete and Pre-Stressed Concrete. And uh, they claimed to be saved, but their language didn't, just, didn't reveal that at all. And I'd, I'd question them on it, you know, how can you, how can you talk like that and then say you're saved? What kind of a testimony is that? Well, he said it doesn't make any difference, because if you're saved, God forgives you. You just have to pray and ask for God to forgive you. And it doesn't make any difference. It basically doesn't make any difference how you live or talk. If you're saved, God forgives you. And Paul is saying here, that absolutely is not true. Uh, that the fact that if uh, we continue in sin, that grace may abound, that's absolute non-truth. How can we, who died to sin, live any longer in it? And he comes alongside that with a do you not know 
in, in verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now the word baptism uh, is, 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 is important to us here because the word baptized, the verb form, when, uh, when uh, the King James English uh, translation was made, most of it was translated. This was transliterated. And there's a reason for it. If you think back, I don't want to get into that, to who wrote the King James. Um, the word baptized is baptizo, the verb form in verse 3. Now, if they'd have translated that instead of transliterated it, they'd have said immersed. You who are immersed. You who are immersed. And the word baptism, the noun form, is baptizma. And that's in verse 4. So Paul here uses this to refer to water baptism and the fact that it's a picture of our salvation. And we'll get further into that. I'm going to turn real quick uh, to 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. Because now Paul wrote this nine years earlier than he did Romans. And he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance that I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So he's saying, I also received this. I, I believe he's talking about he received this from, through the Holy Spirit. Of first importance, that Christ died for us in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Then he went on to the fact that he appeared to these different people. But he puts a, he puts a very important emphasis there on the fact of Christ's uh, death, burial, and salvation. Now he comes back in Romans, and he's showing these people here, here's how it's pictured. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, can that be spirit baptism or something else? I don't think so. I know this. Uh, Paul, the vast majority of the time that he uses those terms in the New Testament, it is used in accordance with water baptism. And I think that fits here. We were buried, therefore, verse 4, with him, in bab- it, it, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might walk in newness of life. So that's why pa- Pastor holds very important, especially when he's dealing with children and he talks to them, and if he's not certain, he'll, he'll take some time uh, and kind of wait on the whole process of baptism. Why? Because baptism represents a newness of life that we have in Christ Jesus, and it pictures his death, his burial, his resurrection. Now, the resurrection there, I think, is, is uh, uh, multifaceted. I think one is we resurrect to newness of life. Now, he resurrected to newness of life, but it was eternal life and glory. And we resurrect to newness of life in this life, but ultimately, ultimately that is carried out and is displayed in our newness of life that we have also in eternity and glory. So uh, a very important application here is the fact that he is representing that we are newness of life and that baptism pictures the very act of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, which is a total picture of our salvation. That's a total picture of our... You can't leave any of the, one of those three things out and have salvation. If Christ didn't die, 
We don't have salvation. If he wasn't buried, if he wasn't resurrected again on, on his own in three days, or by the Father, however you want to look at that, uh, we don't have it. If he doesn't ascend into heaven, which was the ultimate result of his uh, resurrection. So a very important part of our, uh, our doctrine here. Now, the next thing he has is he shows this with the whole thing of being united. Uh, and the, in verse 6 he says, our old self. And what's he talking about as he talks about our old self? Well, I think that's what we have in Adam. And in verses uh, 18, 8 through 14, he's talking about the results of our resurrection in Christ. Why did Christ have to die to sin as part of verse 10 that we're going to get to? But let's just look at the highlights here in verse 8. If we've died with Christ, we also live with him. Verse 9. If uh, we know that Christ is raised from the, the dead and will never die again, death no longer has dominion over him. And for the death, he died. He died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And, and again, that whole picture of what we have in Jesus Christ and how do we live that out? How do we live that out in our lives? And our ability to now obey God's law. And rather where we've been in disobeying it. But in verse 10, he says, and maybe some of you caught this, for the death he died, he died to sin. What does that mean that Christ died to sin? Why did he have to die to sin? Okay, because we have a sin nature. But this sounds a little, pardon me? Pardon? There's a price that has to be paid. Anybody else? Why would Christ have to die? Why is he so, so specific here and he said Christ died to sin? He was without sin. He was a perfect sacrifice. But in Hebrews chapter 2, it says that and I'm not going to turn there, verse 14 through 17, it says that he was tempted just as we are, but without sin. And I think, I think what, he's, what he's alluding to here, in Christ's humanity, he was tempted with every sin that we're tempted with. But he didn't sin. He was perfect. And I think that's important for us to remember that he was tempted just as we are. And that's why I think why, why Paul says here that he... Uh, dies to sin. So, we have two things. We have the uh, penalty of sin and we have the power of sin. Christ conquered, in his life, he conquered the power over sin. He conquered that. He did not sin. But when he died, he not only paid our penalty, but he also allowed us to have the power to not sin. And uh, I think that's very important for us to remember. We are free from sin's reigning, if you read in verses 12 through 14, it says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. And verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. What then, verse 15, are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? And that's the next question that gets, that gets asked. So we have the ability not to sin and we have the ability not to have sin to reign in our mortal bodies. That doesn't mean we don't sin, because we know we do. 
But there should be a trajectory in our life that we can look at to see our sanctification. You know, and pastors alluded to this. You know, you look back two years, five years ago, and now you look at your life today. Is there a difference? Is there a change in your life? If there's not, that's a problem. And there should be that constant sanctification and growth as we cross paths in the Word of God with sin, and we recognize because the Bible tells us that it is sin in our life, that we then have the ability to have victory over it and not let it reign in our lives. Now, in the last part here, verses 15 through 23, uh, we're talking now about the, the topic of slaves. I'm just going to re- read some of the parts that I highlighted here. And the whole idea here as we read through this is this. There's a new master. There's a new master. And he uses which slavery, not the slavery we think about in the 1800s here in the U.S., but slavery was a common thing. And actually, it was a needed thing in the, in the lives and the times that, uh, that Jesus walked this earth. But, and we're not going to get into that. You know, pastors dealt with that, and, and if you want to ask him about it, you can. What then? Are we to sin? Because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Now, he said the same thing earlier about, uh, about this whole topic of law. He repeats this over and over. There's a reason for that. And he says down in the uh, last part of verse 16, you are slaves of the one whom you obey. Either sin, which leads to death, eternal death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having set, been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So we're no longer slaves to sin, we should be slaves of righteousness. That should be our desire. And that righteousness isn't just the vertical that we think about between us and God, it's the horizontal that we think about between us, between Christians. If, if, if there's, if there's uh, objects between us, if there are things that lay between us and we don't resolve them, that's sin. But he wants us to be slaves to righteousness that we have these things resolved. That's, that's why the church family is so crucial and so important. And we need to live as a family. So there's a summary here on this. So we're going to jump down to verses... 21 and 22. And I think this summarizes it very well. In 21, it says, um, but the, what fruit are you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. So here's what we see, I see in, in these verses, in summarizing verse 21. What is our status before salvation? What is our status? We were a slave to sin, and we are free from righteousness. There was no righteousness in, in ourselves, uh, none at all. And we know our righteousness is our, our filthy rags in the, in the sight of God because most of them uh, were some kind of self-propagation. But we are slaves of sin. What's the result of that? The fruit is bearing shame. Now, we can all, I think, identify with that you know, when you're saved. And I think of the early, the early years that I was saved and didn't have good discipleship and just kind of left on your own. Uh, there's all kinds of things that I did that I look back and I'm ashamed of. 
And that's what it brings. The result of the fruit of that is bearing shame. But what's the status now? What's the outcome of that is death. Spiritual death is the outcome that we see in verse 21. Now in verse 22, it says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So what are we seeing there? The status? We're free from sin. We're slaves now of God. That's what we should be. We were slaves to sin. Now we should be slaves to God. The result of that is fruit that brings sanctification. It should bring spiritual growth in our lives. And the outcome is that we have life. And that life isn't only a new life that we can have here in Christ. It's the ultimate life that we'll have in eternity. So he, he kind of... You know, the, the, verse, the next verse that's common to us, I think, sums up the whole thing. And we know this verse, most of us know it by heart. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift, now remember, that goes back to chapter 5. The matter of the free gift. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we can praise God for that. So the conclusion I see here in, verse, in this chapter is the unsaved are not able not to sin. Now, for you people who are good in English, I just did a double negative, which is wrong. But it serves a purpose here. When, before, we, before we were saved, we were not able not to sin. Absolutely, we're going to be sinners. Once we're saved, we're now able not to sin. We are able not to sin. Now, because we still have a part of old man in us, and that sin nature that's uh, inherent there, uh, we, we don't accomplish that. But we are able not to sin. And the ultimate is going to be, in eternity, we're not able to sin. So when we, when we, when we uh, if, if we're raptured out of here and we come back with Christ on his second coming, and he sets up the, a new kingdom here on earth, uh, we're going to be able to live in that and not able to sin. Now, the people that enter the kingdom out of the tribulation, Jew and Gentile, that enter there and repopulate during that, that thousand-year reign, uh, they're going to face the same challenge. They're going to be not able not to sin until they bow their knee and, and, uh, in righteousness. So that's what I see here in, in chapter 6. We're free from that bondage of sin. Let's not use that freedom uh, unwisely. Let's use it wisely. Now in chapter 7, we're free from the bondage of the law. And the, the first six verses here in chapter 7, he starts again with that, that common thing, or do you not know, brother? Or what he could be saying is, you do know. You do know. And that knowledge should be something that is is before us, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Now that know the law part, and there's, there's all kinds of difference of opinions on who he's addressing there. But I always come back to the fact he's addressing the Roman church. Uh, is he addressing Jews? Absolutely. Because the Jews knew the law. Is he addressing Gentiles? As we said before, early in, way, in the first lesson, I believe, we talked about the fact that there are Gentiles here in the Old Testament they are called God-fears. 
And in the Old Testament, we saw the Gentile court uh, as it had to do with the uh, tabernacle. And the Gentile court was only for Gentiles, so they had a limited uh, exposure, if you will. But they were God-fears, and they knew the law. And I think we see the same thing here in the Roman church from, from early on, as he's really addressing the fact it's Jew and Gentile, Jew and Gentile, Jew and Gentile. I don't see anything different here. I think there are, there are plenty of Gentiles in that Roman church who knew the law, who probably had been exposed to that before they were ever saved and, and uh, became a part of the church. It doesn't really make any difference in the end because uh, uh, it, 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 the application is going to be the same. It's just as applicable to us as it was to the people he was writing to. And then he goes on to use something that can be really confusing, and that's an illustration of marriage and divorce. We are out to, we are out to uh, dinner this week with a, uh, a family here from church and uh, uh, brought that up a little bit. We don't want we don't, we don't to go to this verse to prove the issue of marriage and divorce. Uh, I think 1 Corinthians 7, which we went through and we, when I taught through Corinthians, addresses it much better. But he's using it for a pur- purpose. He's using it as an illustration here that death can bring freedom from the law. Just like he's saying here, the death of a husband or wife brings freedom to the other partner. But that freedom uh, now allows us to exercise a new relationship. So it's really a theological point that he's dealing with here and not giving, uh, not giving some kind of a synopsis on marriage and divorce. And the, the theological point is this, that we were, we, were bond, we were in bondage to sin, and thus we were property, if you will, of Satan. We were in bondage to sin and hell and everything that was cast out of heaven uh, when Satan rebelled. But now, in Jesus Christ, when we get saved, we are free from sin. We are free from the bondage of the law, because the law was the knowledge of what? Sin. And we're going to get to more on the law in just a little bit, so bear with me. And now that we're free in our, in our salvation, and our justification, we now have the capacity and the ability to have a new relationship. That's, I think, what he's illustrating there with using the, the whole marriage thing. It's a new relationship we have in Jesus Christ. So in these first six verses, I'm just going to run through what I see as recurring theme and give you a scripture where that came from. And the first one is this. We're not possession of the law, but obedience that counts. Possessing the law didn't do anything for, for Israel. And that's part of what he's dealing with here in chapter 7, is the fate of Israel. And he's going to use his own testimony, I believe, as an unsaved Jew and a Pharisee to, uh, to establish that. Not possession of the law, but obedience to the law that counts. Remember the faith and obedience thing. Chapter 2, and I'm going to, I'm going to flip back there real quick to one verse in chapter 2, verse 13. Um, verses 12 and 13, and also later on in the chapter 17 to, to 20 or so. But in 13, he says this, chapter 2, verse 13, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. 
And then he goes on to even talk about Gentiles when they knew the law. So it's not a possession of the, of the law, it's obedience to the law that counts. The second thing is the law is unable to justify anyone. Chapter 3, verses 20 and 28. The law is unable to justify anyone. The overall impact of the law does three things. It brings a consciousness of sin, chapter 3. It brings wrath, chapter 4, verse 15. And it brings an increase in trespass, chapter 5, verse 20, that uh, we just had last week. An increase in trespass. How? Because now we know what sin is. Before the law, there was a certain innocence of the law and that their conscience bore them witness of what was right and wrong. People still died and went to hell, but now with the law came a much stronger knowledge of what sin was and identification of sin. It was very complete when God gave the law, and we're going to be addressing that in just a couple of seconds here. But now we know what sin is, so the trespass, he said, increases. The last one is to be free from sin we must be removed from the binding authority of the law. Chapter 6, verses 14 and 15 that we just, that we just saw there. I'm going to read those again. Verses 14 and 15. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Uh, he, he's implying there that's a ridiculous conclusion. There's no way that that should be the proper conclusion. So we see here he's addressing those who know the law, both Jew and Gentile, and the fact that, you know what? You are free from the law if you're saved, and you're not bound. You are free to have a new relationship with another. You are no longer a part of the unsaved under the bondage of law, under the bondage of sin, and on your way to hell as a disciple of Satan. But now, in Jesus Christ, you have a new relationship, you have a new status. We've used that word a lot the last few weeks. You have a new status. In Jesus Christ, which allows you, and the picture he used there was the picture of, uh, of divorce. So going on, looking at verses 7 through 12. What shall we say then, verse 7, that the law is sin? By no means. Now we're going to get to the part here that that I think is, is going to be really a capsule of what we're talking about and have talked about with the law. Uh, verses 7b through 11, sin uses God's law to bring death. And we see that over and over. And we have a little time here. Um, but uh, Verse 8, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Once that, uh, the law came out, thou shalt not covet, now all of a sudden, they recognize all kinds of covetousness in their life. And they realize, you know what, I'm a whole lot more of a sinner than I ever thought I was. And that's what he's pointing out here. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. But then we get down to verses 11 and 12. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. Now, we know in the Garden of Eden... Uh, what happened with Eve? She was deceived and fell into sin. Adam willfully sinned as the head of man. Adam willfully sinned. She was deceived. And here, Paul is saying, for sin seizing an opportunity through a commandment, deceived me. And through it, killed me. 
And I believe Paul's talking about himself here, and we're going to get into a whole bunch of I, I, I here in just a, just a couple minutes. But he's talking about himself here. I believe this is a testimony of Paul as an unsaved Jew who is also a Pharisee. He knew the law, and he was deceived by the law. That's why he thought he was doing God a justice when he did what? Killed the Christians. Killed the Christians. On his way to kill, kill them uh, in Damascus when, when uh, Jesus Christ appeared to him. And he bowed his knee. But he was on his way to kill Christians. Why? Because he was deceived by the law. He thought he was doing God a favor. And he goes on, so in verse 12, the law is holy and the commandments are holy and righteous and good. And what he's talking about there, the, the law is a perfect reflection of God's holy character. When we reflect on the law, we reflect on the character of God and the standard for believer, believers to please him. So what should we do with the law? We should obey it. And so obeying, we please him. Remembering, it can't save us. It didn't save Paul. And he knew the law as well as anybody. He thought he was doing a God of, God of favor, going out and killing these Christians, these Jesus followers, and found out, no, he was expanding his sin. Thou shalt not kill. So the law is holy, and it's good, and it's righteous, because it, it, it reflects the perfect character of God. That's just a fabulous verse right there, I believe. So we're, let's get into the last part of this and finish up chapter 7, verses 13 through 25. What experience is Paul referring to in uh, these verses? Did, verse 13, did that was good me? And I believe he's talking about himself personally here. It means it was sin producing death in me through what is good, the law, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. And I think as we go on here, there's a lot of, there's a lot of opinions on what Paul is addressing here. I think this is a testimony of Paul as a, as a lost soul, as a lost Jew, excuse me, and... Uh, as a lost Jew, as also as a Pharisee who knew the law, and he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And so knowing the law, I think he's giving here these people a testimony. So let's just, let's just hop through these eyes real quick. Starting in verse uh, 15. I do not understand my own actions, for I not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Does that sound like us sometimes? Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in, the, in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Now, there are phrases that come up here that, that, that absolutely tell me that we're dealing here with a person who is uh, either depicting himself or is unsaved or is unsaved. Well, we know when Paul wrote this, he was saved. So I believe he's depicting himself as unsaved. And one of those is, is right there. Another one, as a matter of fact, I'm going to flip back. Um, in verse 14, uh, it, it, we, 
we started in verse 15, but verse 14 says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Now, this is all part of this testimony. But what is he saying there when he says, I am of the flesh sold under sin? Some of you, now, if you have an NIV, what does it say? In verse 14, I am what? Unspiritual. So he's addressing, before he even gets into the eyes, the fact that he's talking about himself in an unsaved state. How was it for him in his life as an unsaved Jew, as a Pharisee? And he's not talking about you know, himself as saved like some people would want to depict, but rather as unsaved. And he goes on in verse 20, Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, verse 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner law, being I see in my members another law waging war. What is it? Later on there it says the law of sin. And it goes on, wretched man that I am. So what is Paul depicting here? And we're going to have to close. As we read through these eyes, and that key verse is the one I went back to, verse 14. Yes, Wayne. I think that starting at about... That's what I thought until I got into this study. And the fact that he says there, and there's other places he remarks, that I am unspiritual, I think that would put him in a classification of as looking at his life as an unsaved. Either way, it doesn't change the outcome of what he's addressing here, either way. And I know there are many. And, you know, when you read enough commentaries, you end up seeing both sides of that issue. But I, I personally, I came to the point that, that in chapter 7, he's talking about his life as an unsaved Jew. Partly because I understand the tense you're saying, but the whole, the whole book of Romans is written in a present, in a present tense, if you will. It's written by him as a saved individual. But he's going back to show what, is, what our life of bondage is. So, and that's fine, Wayne. I would have no problem with that. So he goes on here and finishes off in chapter... We see chapters 6 and 8 are bookends to chapter 7 in some ways. Even though chapter 6 is about the bondage of sin... In chapter 7, verse 14, he says, I am unspiritual. I think the NIV has, has it best there. I am unspiritual. I'm sold as a slave to sin. And that definitely, whether he's speaking here, present tense, and the conflict he has, I don't believe as a saved individual, you can be sold as a slave to sin and be unspiritual. Go ahead. Appropriately. Either way... We're dealing with the same result. And we're dealing with the issue here. So I have no problem with that. And I knew when I brought it up, I knew I was going to hear from Wayne. And uh, I figured I'd hear from Eric. And that's fine. That's good. So finishing up here, verse 23 of chapter 7 says, Making me a prisoner of the law of sin. So he's making me a prisoner of the law of sin. Now what do the bookends say? Well, in chapter 6, verse 18 and 22, it says, you have been set free from sin. And in chapter 8, which we'll get to next week, dealing with the Holy Spirit, through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life, the Holy Spirit, set me free from the law of sin 
and death. So no matter how you look at this, chapter 7 is a, is a difficult chapter. And it's a hard chapter because, to me, it should draw, us, draw real, real close to home for us and the struggle we have in life, in the flesh. And whether we see that as Paul's, either way with Paul doesn't make any difference. But the reality is we can be thankful that we're set free. We're free in Jesus Christ and his salvation. If you're not saved, if you see yourself here as you have no victory in these areas, then you need to get saved. Otherwise, uh, uh, we need to be uh, having a goal of sanctification in this life. Okay, Jason, I'm done.